The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Let's now go to God's Word, and I would invite you to Leviticus, uh, sorry, uh, in your Old Testament, we're going to go to Exodus 19. You may have been thinking that we were going to be in Luke chapter 8. Well, we're getting there, but I wanted to lay some background to Luke chapter 8 by going to Exodus chapter 19. This is I wanted to do this also because we aren't always allocated and sufficient time to spend uh, in the Old Testament. We spend most of our time in the New Testament, but everything in the New Testament flows from the Old Testament, is based on the Old Testament. Jesus, the Savior, who's talked about in the New Testament, he is an Old Testament, uh, really, rabbi and teacher of the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, so he said he came to fulfill the Old Testament. So anytime we can at least go back to the Old Testament and see a little sketch or a wonderful truth that illuminates the meaning in the New Testament, that is to our benefit. And I thought that was appropriate today. If you look at Exodus 19 before we go into Luke chapter 8, let me bring you back in time. This is in the days of Moses. God raised up to be a prophet and like a savior of the Jewish people. And Moses was commissioned by God, Yahweh, to lead over a million Israelite slaves out of Egypt through the Red Sea down to that big mountain there, Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula, and then eventually around and across the Jordan River into the Promised Land, a 40-year journey. But at the beginning of this, as they just went through the Red Sea, God calls his people, all million-plus Israelites who are no longer slaves. They've been liberated, but here they are out in the wilderness, and they're down before a mountain. And uh, Moses goes up to talk to Yahweh on Mount Sinai, on Mount Horeb. So just follow along at verse 1 of Exodus 19. In the third month after the sons of Israel, or the children of Israel, had gone out of the land of Egypt where they were slaves, on that very day, three months later, they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they're before the mountain of God. And when they set out uh, from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God. This was the first of many times. Moses, the prophet of God, would talk to God and get revelation from God for the people. Moses went up to God on the mountain, and Yahweh, the Lord, called to Moses from the mountain, saying, and this is God talking, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I just saved you. I am your Savior. I just liberated you from slavery after 400 years from the Egyptians. I am your Savior. You are my people. You belong to me. So listen. Verse 5. God goes on. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice, obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. So I wanted to zero in on verse 5. God, for the first time really, uh, since they've been liberated, before the mountain of God, God is giving a simple imperative or command for his people. And the command is in verse 5, and it's very simple, and he says, obey. That's what my English translation says. The verb there is obey. Actually, in Hebrew, uh, the verb is hear, hear, or listen. 
So literally, you could read it this way. Now then, if you will indeed listen to my voice, if you will hear my voice. Now, the uh, NIV takes the word Hebrew word listener here and translate it as obey fully, which is kind of getting at what the meaning is. Remember, the word is literally hear or listen. But what it means is to obey. And the word being used means to obey fully. Uh, the CSB gives a good rendering. The Christian Standard Bible says this. Translates here as carefully listen. Carefully, and that is exactly what the word means, and that's what God intends for his people. Verse 5. Now then, if you will indeed carefully listen to my voice. Carefully listen is the literal word. The New American Standard and several other English translations, they give us the meaning of the word hear. What did God mean by the word hear? Well, it's like when you talk to your child and you look them in the face. Look at me. Look at me. Did you hear what I said? You don't mean did you just happen to hear it. You're, you're asking them, you're calling them to obedience. Did you hear it? Not only did you listen, did you understand? Hopefully you agree because you are expected to comply. You're calling for obedience. That's what the word means. The word hear. Now then, if you would indeed hear my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. How are God's people going to show or display or manifest that they actually belong to God? They do it by their obedience. Remember Jesus who said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. You show that you're listening by obeying. You show that you're hearing by obeying. You show that you're loving by obeying. That's what God's getting at here. So he's telling these maybe up to 2 million Jews, calling them to hear my voice, hear my word, listen to my word, attend to my word, keep my word, obey my word, and if you do, that will show that you belong to me, you are my possession, and you are different from all the people that are in the earth. Verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses was obedient and he did that. So Moses came and called all the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And here was the response of the people. So uh, Moses faithfully gave this command to those one million Israelites where God just simply said, you are my people, therefore you need to hear me. You need to hear my word. You need to obey my word. And verse 8, this was the initial response of all those people. They said, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then they probably all said, hip, hip, hooray. And they're just having a celebration. Of course we'll obey. We just got liberated from Egypt. And you can just imagine the scene. Imagine that. All the people answered together and said, all that the Yahweh has spoken through Moses, we will do. And then it's, you keep reading, and not long after, Moses leaves again up the hill, goes to get the Ten Commandments, and as God is writing the very Ten Commandments in, in the stone, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt have no other idols. What are they doing? They are making a golden calf down below. On the heels of crying out to God, of course we will obey all of your words. But I wanted to put in context 
this Hebrew word here. That's literally the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word for here is shama. I don't know if you've ever heard that. It's a very uh, familiar, popular word shama in Hebrew. If you grew up as an Orthodox Jew or even somewhat of a secular Jew, probably you know what the Shema is. The Shema is a prayer. Go to Deuteronomy. Now flip from um, Exodus and go to Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now it's 40 years later. These people who have said, we will obey, we will listen, we will hear, we will follow your commands, God. They did for the most part. They're being disobedient. They're doing their own thing. Many of them have been chastened. They've been in the wilderness going in circles for 40 years. Now they're about to go into the promised land to cross the Jordan just before Moses dies. And 40 years later, God reissues his commands once again as a reminder. So look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. So Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. 40 years later, it's a new generation of Jews. And before they go into the promised land, God gives them their priorities and what he expects of them. And then he gives them the Shema, it is called. Uh, Shema means to hear. So starting at uh, chapter 6, verse 1, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which Yahweh your God has commanded me to teach you, says Moses, that you might do them. It's, so you're expected to do what God says. You hear him and then you do it. Uh, do them in the land where you are going as you cross over the Jordan River, verse 2, so that you and your son and your grandson or your children might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. If you obey, God will bless you. That principle still abides. Verse 3, O Israel, God is pleading with Israel now. O Israel, you should listen. Okay, You should hear. That's the Hebrew word, shama. O Israel, you should hear and be careful to do do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. And then verse 4 is the great Shema. And that is in the Jewish culture, starting back even before the time of Christ, they zeroed in on this passage as one of their favorite passages, one of the most important passages. It became a prayer, a daily prayer that they would say several times a day. They had it memorized inside and out, backward and forward. They would teach it to their children as soon as they could talk. And it became almost a superficial incantation of a mantra. It almost became meaningless the way they recited it. And they would just say it, the Shema. And it's uh, basically verses 4 and following. And that's the first thing you do. I had a friend who was a, a Jew, grew up in a Jewish synagogue, not a Christian. And then he became a believer probably in his 20s, and then he still had the Shema memorized. And he, he would recite this for me in Hebrew just like that, like the back of his hand. And here's what it said. Verse 4, this is the Shema. Shema comes from the first word in this verse. Shema means to hear. Here, I'll teach you a little Hebrew this morning. On three, say Shema. One, two, three, Shema. There you go. It means to hear. Oh, hear. A very popular word all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, when the prophets would come and plead with the people, they would say, Hear, thus saith the Lord, hear his word. What that meant was obey. God said that many times. Hear the word of the Lord. That means obey the word of the Lord. Uh, the psalmist many times would use the word shema, crying out to God, God, hear, hear, as they plead their case. It means act. God, act on my behalf. Save me, rescue me, protect me, provide for me. Hear, that's what it means, shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. Literally, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is Elohim. The Lord 
is one. That's the beginning of the prayer, the great Shema. And they call it the word Shema. I can't overemphasize enough that verb, Shema, to hear, to give attention to, to follow, to obey, to own it, to put words into action. The great Shema. So now let's go to the New Testament with that simple verb. By the way, in Hebrew, your entire Old Testament, there is not a specific word for obey. Most of the time when the authors of the Old Testament wanted to communicate obey, they used the word here, shama. Children, shama your parents. Listen to your parents, hear your parents, that means obey. Now with that background, it's very important because now we go to Luke chapter 8. Remember, Jesus grew up as a Jew, born and raised as a Jew, an obedient Jew, a temple Jew, uh, did all the, fulfilled the, the Mosaic law perfectly, did everything that it required in terms of the cleansing that his mother had to go through when he was born. He, got to, he was circumcised on the eighth day. He complied with the law of God, the Mosaic law, as it was given by God, 100%, without failure. He fulfilled the law perfectly, every jot and tittle. Not only that, oh, he also went to synagogue growing up learning the Hebrew Scriptures, growing as the God-man, as a human. And then at some point, he became a rabbi. That means designated teacher of the Hebrew Scriptures. He was called rabbi, and legitimately so, the greatest rabbi there ever was. And Jesus' text, when he taught and preached, was the Old Testament, the Word of God, the Law of Moses. So as a rabbi, he knew the Shema. He expected the Shema. He required the Shema. He required obedience. He represented God the Father. He himself was God. So this word Shema was very important. It had meaning in context to Jesus. And I want you to read, go back and read Luke 8 with that understanding, the significance of that. And Jesus is speaking to a Jewish crowd. When they hear the word Shema, they know what that means. That means obey, give attention to. Oh, that's Deuteronomy 6.4. That's Exodus 19.5, the beginning of the covenant. This is what God requires. This is the evidence that we actually know and love Him. To hear, to hear the Word of God. And to hear means not just to listen, but to understand the Word of God, to welcome the Word of God, or to comprehend it, to believe the Word of God, to submit to the Word of God, to do the Word of God, and to continue to remember the Word of God. That's how loaded that one term is. Hear the word of, the God, of God. Now look at Luke chapter 8, and we are now in verse 16 to 21. And before I read verses 16 to 21, we are coming uh, off of uh, verses basically 1 all the way up to verse 15, and uh, Austin preached on the four soils. And that was wonderful. That, that was just a, a beautiful blessing. And so today's sermon is a compliment to Austin laying the groundwork of those four soils as the Lord Jesus was talking about the Word of God being disseminated and preached and given to the people, and then how the people respond. And how does Jesus want us to respond to the Word of God whenever we hear it? He wants us to hear it. Hear it. As a Hebrew rabbi, that means something. Not just hear it. Welcome it. Comprehend it. Under, and work hard to understand it. To embrace it. To not resist it. To not question it. To love the Word of God. To not be embarrassed by the Word of God. 
be willing to be rebuked by the truth of the word of God. If it goes against my thinking. That's what he's after. Not only that, it is to submit to the word of God. That's really where it's at. That's a heart issue. We're gonna see, we saw that in the four soils. It had to do with the heart. Austin was reminding us that there are four categories of people. Three who do not properly respond to the word of God when they hear it. Only one group properly responded. And it all came down. It was, the, the seed wasn't the problem. The seed was the truth of the, of the gospel, the living word of God. The problem was the heart of the people. Three groups did not welcome the word of God. Three groups, although they heard, they didn't hear. That's why the Old Testament prophets would say, ears have they and they hear not. They hear the message, but they don't welcome the message. They hear the, the message, but maybe they do welcome it, but they don't do it. Or maybe they hear it, welcome it, do it for a short time, but don't continue to do it. That was the four soils. So look at this emphasis that Jesus put on hearing the word of God. So that's what I want to challenge you with today. That's the, the title of the sermon today, is hearing is doing. And what I mean by that is hearing the word of God is doing the word of God. Let me put it another way. Hearing the, the Bible is doing. You don't hear God until you do what he says. That's what it means. And that's Jesus' point of emphasis. Uh, let me point out a few verses. Uh, starting in Luke chapter 8, verse 1, just where we are in Jesus' ministry, remember, he is writing to a gentleman, a dignitary. We don't know a whole lot about him. We know his name is Theophilus, a dignitary, a man of prominence, wealth, reputation. Uh, may, maybe he even was funding Luke's research. We don't know. But he was on the fence about the truth of Christianity. And so Luke is doing research. He's interviewing people. He's compiling documents. He's being led by the Spirit of God. And he's putting together what amounts to this 24-chapter book to give as a treatise of truth, a very long gospel tract to give to, uh, to his friend Theophilus that he might understand truly who Jesus is and be saved. So it is evangelistic. And that's what he's been doing. And so now he is in the Galilean ministry of Jesus towards the the middle part and the end of his ministry that maybe lasted a year and a half to two years. And Jesus is going around, we've already seen this, from town to town and village to village, nonstop, all throughout Galilee, preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel, preaching. That's what Jesus did. What was he? He was a preacher, preaching the good news. And historians tell us there were over 240 towns and villages in Galilee at the time. And Jesus was on the circuit with his apostles to cover every single town. That's why he needed almost two years to do it going from town to town, so that takes us to chapter 8, verse 1. Soon afterwards, Jesus began going around from one city and village to another. The itinerant preacher had no place to lay his head. What was he doing? He was proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. Preaching the truth, the gospel, about who he was, how he came to fulfill the Old Testament. Calling people to repent from sin. Seek him as Savior. That was his message. Get right with God, because you're not right with God. And I'm the only one who can make you right with God. I am the Savior. That's what he was preaching. He was having success initially. We already saw that in Luke chapter 4. But again, Luke reminds us in chapter 8, verse 4, then when a large crowd was coming together to see Jesus, a large, a massive crowd was coming together to hear Jesus, and those from various cities were journeying to People were coming from all over Palestine, even way down south in Jerusalem and beyond, coming out of the cracks to hear this 
miracle worker. So it is a massive crowd. And they're following him wherever he goes. This crowd was so big wherever he went now at this point that he could hardly move. There are t- stories we have in the Gospels where he'd be in a house and the, the entire town is converging on the house and he couldn't even get out the front door. And people outside couldn't get in the front door. And he's trying to teach it, and people are just smothering him, suffocating him as he's trying to preach and teach. That's the level of his popularity and the fascination from the people. So that's the way it is right now. And this has been going on for quite some time. This massive popularity and crowds coming from all... Plus, he's giving out free food. So all the more people are coming, and they are just following him everywhere. And it's hard for him. He has to sneak away to get away from the crowds. That's how encumbered they had become on him. Now, his family... uh, was concerned about this after they saw this month after month after month. So you've got Mary, his mother, and then Jesus was the oldest sibling in the family. So there's Mary and Joseph, and then Mary became pregnant with Jesus through the Holy Spirit, not through Joseph, and then Jesus was born of a virgin, Mary, and then after Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary came together and had a normal, they consummated their relationship, and then they had several children after that. In the normal way, James, Jude or Judas, and others, and sisters. So Jesus had several siblings. They were half-siblings, but they were true-blood siblings, brothers and sisters. Now, they were all younger. And so when Jesus began his public ministry after his baptism, Jesus is going out, out of nowhere he, wasn't, he used to be a carpenter. He was silent. He wasn't teaching. He wasn't doing miracles. And all of a sudden, he abandons all that. And he's out preaching and saying crazy stuff. And his siblings are like, what is he doing? He never did that growing up. Where did this come from? He wasn't trained for this. And apparently, he's doing miracles. And now the crowds are just following him. And he is claiming to be the savior of the world. His younger brothers couldn't handle that. Mary knew that. But his siblings literally couldn't handle it. They didn't believe it. That's what John chapter 7 says. In the peak of his ministry, his own brothers basically rejected Christ. Called him a fool. Mark chapter 3 says literally that the whole family got together and they decided, you know what, mom? And they're trying to work mom over. Now, mom, Mary, she is faithful. She knows Jesus is unique. The angel appeared to her. But she's entertaining what these other disciples, I mean the siblings are saying about Jesus who they don't believe in. So we don't know if they were jealous or just ignorant or what, had hard hearts at the time. But they don't like what Jesus is doing. They don't like the crowds that he's amassing. They actually think, oh, and then now he's getting skeptics and critics from influential people because the more the leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes hear about Jesus, the more they are threatened and they have all the power in Israel. So that when the disciples or the the brothers, the siblings of Jesus, go to synagogue now, they might be getting harassed by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and being mocked. you got a crazy brother. They were threatened by him. So this this was growing, this trend. It got so bad that in Mark chapter 3, it says the siblings of Jesus went with their mother. They heard, oh, Jesus is in town. He's at that uh, town across the way over there uh, in Gal. Let's go there and let's try to talk to our brother. And it literally says, uh, Mary and Jesus' brothers and sisters sent word to where Jesus was. They couldn't get in the house because it was so impacted with people. 
There's just layer after layer after layer of this massive crowd. They can't even get in the front door. They can't get through the ceiling. So they send a messenger to tell Jesus, oh, tell Jesus that his mother and his siblings are outside waiting for him, thinking that, oh, he will acquiesce. He'll come to his family. And then it also says, so his family's trying to get him. They decided, you know what, we need to do an intervention. And it literally says they thought Jesus was out of his mind. That's his sibling, his family. That should be encouraging. So if any sibling or relative that you have who's not a Christian says you are out of your mind because you're a Christian, man, welcome that. They said it to Jesus first, literally. He is out of his mind. He's insane. He's, got, he's lost it. Let's go get He's embarrassing the family. He's going to get us in trouble. we got to go. And it literally says they were going to go in there and try to take him, literally try to arrest him. And if he doesn't come willingly, we will grab him because there's several younger brothers, and we will take him by force. That's in Mark chapter 3. That's what's going on. So that's a little background and context. So with that going on, Jesus now is preaching to all these crowds, the massive crowds. They're growing and growing, and Jesus doesn't care what the critics say. He's going to be faithful to his Father. And his his message is about himself, and he's calling people to... Here, here. Look at verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 8. Jesus tells that parable that we already saw about the four soils as he's preaching the word of God. And then when he's done, he simply says this in verse 8. He who has an ear, let him hear. So he talks about the four soils. Basically, he preaches the word. And then when he's done, as people are all attentive and listening and hanging on every word, for he taught as no man ever taught, His conclusion is, he who has an ear, let him hear. Notice the emphasis on hear. If he was saying it in Hebrew, it would have sounded like this. He who has an ear, shama. Shama. Obey. The gall of him. Because basically what he's saying, he is equating his words with the word of God. His words have as much authority as the living scriptures. How arrogant is that? Many of the critics must have been thinking, but it was true. He's the God-man. And he's saying, Shema. Shema. By the way, he didn't say it that way. I just, said, I just read the verse twice. He who has an ear, let him hear. He didn't say that because the phrase before says, after teaching, he would call out. He would cry out. He would scream at the top of his lungs. That's what it means. He who has ears, let him hear. That's how he said it. He's trying to get their attention. It is a warning. It's a stark warning. Don't just listen, understand it, and obey. For I speak the word of God. So there's the first reference to hearing in this sermon. Then look at verse 10. Then he quotes from Isaiah, the Old Testament, where it says, he's speaking in parables, seeing that Oh, they see, but they don't really see. And hearing, they may not understand. So they do hear, but they don't really hear. They hear the word of God, but they're not obeying. So in this context, so there's two references to hearing, how important it is. He who has ears, hear. Don't be those who hear, but don't understand. And then in verse 11, 12, 14, and 15 in the four soils, one common denominator in all groups of the four people is it says they heard the word of God. They all heard it. They heard the same message. Verse 11, 
they heard. Or verse 12. Verse 13, they heard the word. Verse 14, they heard the word. And then in verse 15, they heard. Shama in Hebrew. Akuo in Greek, where we get the word acoustics from. Then in verse 17 and 18, after he talks about the four soils, verse 18, he gives this exhortation. So take care how you hear, says the ESV. Take care how you listen, says the NASB. And what Jesus meant was take care and be sure to obey. Obey. Listen attentively so that it leads to obedience. If you're hearing the word of God, listening to Bible teaching, and it doesn't lead to obedience, you're not listening. You're not hearing. You're not complying. You're not being obedient to God. That is not what God wants. That's not what he expects. He expects more. Be doers of the word, said James. James, the half-brother of Jesus, he got the message. James wasn't listening to his brother Jesus. James was mocking his brother Jesus for three and a half years publicly. Then James got saved. Then the light goes on for James. And James writes in his epistle, James chapter 1, be a doer of the word. Be a doer of the word, not a listener only like I was and used to be when I mocked Jesus. Be a doer of the word. Hear the word. Obey the word. And then finally in verse 21 is the word again here. So let's just go through 16 through 21. That's our passage today. And I'm going to divide it into two categories and just two simple principles about godly listening, biblical hearing. Two principles. How can I be sure that I am listening to the Word of God the right way, that I'm hearing it the right way, so that I don't run the risk of being one of the three bad soils we just read about? Because here's the reality. Here's the news. There are four categories of people, the four soils, that represent every single pe person that is here today in this church facility or outside or that's listening. Every single one of us falls into the, one of these categories. What demographic do I belong in? I'm hearing the Word of God. I'm hearing the Bible. But how am I responding? Am I really hearing it? You know, what's sad is that probably most of the, the people in the first three categories that we saw, the bad soil, most of whom welcomed the Word, they welcomed initially biblical truth. They welcomed what Jesus was saying but they weren't real listeners. They weren't obeying. They were not born again. They, they didn't get saved is what it says. They weren't true believers. They, there was a superficial listening. Aside from the first group of people that just denied it altogether, what's sad is that many people think or they just don't know that they're in the category where they're not a believer. Oh, I hear the Bible. I go to church. I grew up in a Christian church. Yeah, I'm a Christian. And they're not. They're self-deceived. That's why Paul says you got to examine yourself. Examine. Always going back. Examine yourself in a biblical manner. Allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart and your mind. God, do I belong to you? And God in his grace and in his love, according to Romans 9, he will confirm his assurance to you that you truly know him and are a child of God through the ministry of the indwelling spirit. And he will give you security and assurance. It's a beautiful thing. It's very personal. And it's real. But we need to be willing to evaluate ourselves to make sure that we're in category number four, those who truly heard the word of God, those who truly welcome the word of God, who are known by obeying the word of God, and they're producing fruit showing they are in the family of God and not in the first three categories where I am self-deceived or blinded by Satan. So let's look at verses 16 to 21, two ways that we can be biblical listeners to assure we have good soil on which God can do his work. 
verses 16 to 18. I just call it proactive listening. Proactive listening. And then verses 19 to 21 is prioritized listening. So let's look at this, these ideas of proactive listening, verses 16 to 18. So Jesus preaches this sermon. He gives the parable. He explains the meaning of the word going out on the four soils. It's in a parable, and parables are simple. And Jesus' intention, really, when he gives a parable, is he wants his people to understand spiritual truth. He's taking the esoteric down to a concrete level, making it elementary. You should get this when you hear it. And now that you hear it and understand it, I want you to do it if you belong to me. If you love me, you will obey my commands. So be a proactive listener. What do I mean by that? Well, here's what Jesus says after the four soils, verse 16, 17, and 18. He gives three proverbs in a row. There are three axiomatic proverbs. He actually used all three of these at different times in his ministry. So let's look at those. Um, the first one. So imagine he's got a massive crowd. He's got his 12 apostles. Um, he's just given the four soils. And then he says this in verse 16. We don't know exactly who he's directed it to. Maybe he, it is with a small group of apostles. And he says in verse 16, Now, in light of what you said, no one after lighting a lamp covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed. But he who puts it, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. So this is a simple proverb. He says this uh, a few times, uh, for example, in 1133 and other places in the gospel. This is the proverb that he gave, and it's very simple. Jesus is saying, okay, I have truth, and that truth is light. And you come to me, and I, light your, I give you a torch of light so that you can see. Imagine yourself in Palestine. It's nighttime. You don't have electricity. It rained. The wood's wet. You can't light up your house. You can't light up your torch. You can't light a fire. And there's Jesus, the miracle worker, and he's giving out free torches of light. And you come to him, and he lights your light. And you've been standing in line for quite some time. And he lights your light, so now you have light, and you go back into your dark house, your dark shed, your dark whatever it is, and you have light to illuminate your house. Now, if you've been standing in line to get light from Jesus to go light your house, as soon as he lights your light, you don't snuff it out. That is stupid. That's what Jesus is saying. This is so axiomatic, he doesn't even have to explain it. That would be dumb. You just don't do that. Or you get your light lit by Jesus, and then you go back to your house, and then you get a blanket, and you just throw the blanket over it. And then the whole family says, Dad, why did you do that? Now we can't see. So that's what Jesus is saying. When you get light, you don't snuff it out. When you get light, you put it on display. When you get light, you protect it. When you get light, you cultivate it. You want it, to, you want it to be shown around. So this is an exhortation to his disciples who just heard the word of God. In other words, he's saying, if you just heard my truth and understood my truth, then you need to do my truth and put it on display. Don't take what I just said to you through the four soils and hide it in your heart and zip your lip and not say anything or forget about it or snuff it out or keep it in the dark or keep it a secret. It's not meant to be kept a secret. You represent me. You're my witnesses. That's very well one of the things that he meant by this. So proactive listening, attentively listening to the Lord Jesus, understanding it, assimilating it, making it a part of your life and your worldview, and then acting on it and asking God to help you live it out and even proclaim it. That is proactive listening. Verse 17, here's another proverb he gives that he used several different times. It's related. For nothing is hidden 
that will not become evident. So Jesus is saying, everything's going to be on full display someday anyway. We don't actually know exactly what he's talking about. He could be talking about uh, the truth of the gospel, that someday, okay, yeah, people aren't willing to talk about it. The whole world doesn't know about it. They don't want to hear about it. They're trying to shut it down. They're trying to drown out the truth. But it doesn't matter. Someday God is going to give full display, full air, full illumination to his gospel truth around the entire world all at one time. That's coming at the end of the age. No one will escape the truth. No one can claim ignorance in that day. That, that day's a coming. That could be what he's talking about. It also could be that he's challenging people who out of fear or out of wrong motives or out of compromise or out of ignorance or wrong understanding, they hear the truth of the Bible and then they're not living it, they're not obeying it, they're not proclaiming it for some wrong reason and they're keeping it inside. And they have secrets in their life undermining true spirituality like secret hidden sins. And that's the problem. And Jesus is saying, you know what? It doesn't matter. That's all going to be displayed. You can't run from your sin. You can't hide from your sin forever. It will be revealed sometimes in this life. But all of it at the end. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be made known shall come to light. So you might as well be obedient now. You'll be blessed now if you do. You won't be ashamed later. You keep trying to hide it. This is doing the Word of God. This is proactive hearing, proactive listening. His third par uh, proverb is verse 18. So, take care. So, be careful how you listen. Be careful how you hear. That's a command. Hear unto obedience. Do the Word of God. Don't doubt the Word of God. So take care how you hear. For who, There's a blessing with that, by the way. So take care how you listen or hear. In other words, obey the Word of God. For whoever has the Word of God, whoever has spiritual truth, to him more shall be given. If you're a good steward of biblical truth, by being good, God will give you more. And whoever does not have even what he thinks he has shall be taken away from him. So if you, if you are exposed to spiritual truth and you stiff-arm it, you put it aside, you shut it down, you resist it, out of punishment or chastisement, God will cut off the resources and you will begin to shrivel up and you'll be cut off more and more from the Word of God and you'll become more and more distant from the truth. And with that becomes a greater and greater callousness towards the truth and towards God. And as a person, you become crustier and uglier and even more displeasing to God as time goes by. You become hard-hearted all the more. Your conscience becomes seared more and more when that happens. Be careful. Don't do that. There are things you can do to avoid that, guard against that, prevent that. So this is a great call of Jesus to be proactive in our listening and in, in being serious about listening to Bible teaching and the Word of God and truth when it's disseminated. So that is proactive listening. And then uh, Luke takes this scene that truly happened and he inserts it here to emphasize the point that we need to be uh, good listeners and we need to make a priority of listening to the Word of God and doing it and obeying it. That should be the greatest priority we have in life, is listening to the Word of God and obeying the Word of God. And that needs to be a greater priority over everything else in life. Listening to the Word of God, following the Bible, is more important than your job and the money you make. It is. They don't contradict one another. They complement one another. But there is a pecking order and a priority. 
Listening to the Word of God, doing what God says in the Bible is more of a priority than, get this, than your family. Really. Spirit is more of a priority than blood. A lot of people have a hard time with that. But Jesus said it many times. Here's an example. Let's look at it. What's your greatest priority in life? Is it hearing the Word of God on a regular basis and making it a part of your life? Well, it should be. Prioritize listening. Verse 19. And at one point, Jesus' mother and his brothers came to him, and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. I, I re alluded to this earlier. So they're pressing in on him. They want an audience with their brother. And so verse 20, it was reported to him, Hey, Jesus, your mother, Mary, and your brothers are standing outside. They're wishing to see you. Implication, you need to leave right now and go see them. They're a priority. Family takes priority over everything. Blood takes priority over everything. Does Jesus accommodate and say, uh, yeah, you're right. No. Verse 21, but. No, that means no. It doesn't. But Jesus answered and said to them, to the messengers, my mother and my brothers are these who hear, there it is again, who shema the word of God and do it. Wow. That's awesome. That's a great challenge. This upsets a lot of people. Boy, Jesus wasn't being nice to his mom, the Virgin Mary. No, he's not disrespecting his mother at all. He's not disrespecting his siblings. He's just saying where the priorities are. Your allegiance is to God, first and foremost, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And being committed to Jesus Christ will divide your family. It will create enemies in your immediate family. Jesus said that too. That's what the truth does. The truth divides. And our allegiance is to him. And so there's that beautiful blessing. Uh, my mother, in other words, Jesus is saying, you want to be in my family, my real uh, spiritual family? I'll tell you something that's better than a physical family. Physical blood families are great. That's a gift from God. But you know what's greater, more permanent, deeper? It's being in a spiritual family, the, spirit, the family of God, being a child of God, being a brother of Jesus Christ. Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is the Creator. Jesus is the Judge. And Jesus is my brother, says the book of Hebrews. My elder brother. I grew up with five older brothers. They ain't nothing compared to my best eldest brother, Jesus. And if you know, if you know Christ, he's your elder brother. The perfect older brother. And this is all contingent upon hearing the Word of God. Hearing the Word of God. So I just want to challenge us, saints, how are we doing at, at hearing? You go to Bible study, you go to listen to the sermon, or whatever it is. You hear it on the radio. Are you an attentive listener? Are you welcoming the Word of God? Let me just run through uh, in closing here. Based on the four soils of how to be a good listener. And then I'll, before I give you how to be a good biblical listener with specifics based on our text here and other passages, uh, I'll give you some actually all too common kinds of listening to the Word of God that is not biblical and it's not fruitful. And it could be because these people don't know Christ personally or they're just, they have a shallow Christian life. So here's the first five real quick. As opposed to biblical listening, number one, there is I call it easy listening. Easy. Does that remind you of 94.7? Yes. 
on the FM dial. K-E-Z-Z. Easy listening. There is easy listening. What I mean by this is lazy listening, casual listening. This is passive listening. This is going in. You're sitting in a sermon, and you're, you, you, you're kind of taking it in, sort of. You're a spectator, kind of the same way you'd watch TV. You don't have to do a lot. You don't have to think hard. You don't have to be proactive. So this is easy listening, lazy listening. You're not focused. Um, you don't remember details necessarily. Things are kind of going in and out of focus because uh, the truth's coming in, but you're, you're not focused, you're not zeroed in, and you're struggling a lot with daydreaming. Ten minutes into the sermon, oh, let's see, what am I going to do for lunch today? Then you hear ten more minutes of the sermon, and then you're thinking uh, about your plans next week. And then five more minutes of the sermon goes by where you're actually focused in, and then you're wondering, when does the NFL season start? And then and you're just in and out. That's lazy, easy listening. That is not good. How do you know if you're this kind of a church spectator and listener? Because by Wednesday, you totally forgot what the sermon on Sunday was about. Try that test. So that's the easy listener. Easy, lazy listening. Number two. Uh, wrong way of not being a good hearer of God's word, and that's selective listening. Selective listening. Inconsistent listening. Sometimes we're trained to listen to the word of God this way. What do I mean by selective listening? Uh, this is the kind of listening to the Bible, reading the Bible, studying the Bible, believing the Bible, where you're giving priority to certain verses over other verses. You're pitting one Bible verse over another. You're dichotomizing scripture. Here's how it looks with Several world-renowned famous Bible teachers that I know of that I've heard from their own lips doing this, selective listening, as they teach people. They say, well, you know what? Uh, if you took all the doctrines of Christianity, you've got to put them into three categories. There's the highest category, tier one. Those are the really important doctrines like soteriology. And then there's category number two, tier number two. Ah, not quite as, that truth isn't quite as important, important as a tier one truth like soteriology salvation. And then there's tier three uh, category for third-level doctrines out of the Bible. That truth from God that's not as important as tier one or tier... For example, tier three, that's creation, the doctrine of creation. That's not as important as tier one, salvation. Or tier one, the book of Romans. But tier three, ah, Leviticus. Tier two, First Chronicles. Tier three, the book of Revelation. Tier one, the Gospel of John. Tier 3, Genesis 1 through 3. I have literally heard that from more than one well-known, evangelical, popular Bible teacher. And they're coming up with these categories. And I'm like, these artificial three categories. This doctrine's more important. This, one, this doctrine overrules that one. This doctrine trumps that one. This one's more. And I'm like, where did you get that? Where is that in the Bible? When did Jesus ever say that? I think Jesus said the exact opposite. Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what Jesus said. That is the antithesis of pitting the word of God against itself. Or the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is inspired by God. Literally, all scripture, every single bit of it, came directly from the mind of God. Every word. And you're going to, as a human, you're going to dissect it and tell me what's more important than the other? Really? 
Well, they do that. Watch out for this. It's dangerous. It's even in conservative circles of the church. The Pharisees did that. Jesus confronted them on it. He called them on it too. They were masters of the Bible. But he rebuked them. He said, you know what? You, you pick and choose teachings you want to emphasize and follow, and you neglect other parts of the law about widows. Don't do that. That's selective listening. Don't be inconsistent. So if God says in Genesis chapter 1 or, Genesis, or Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, where it says, and God said, that's what it says, Yahweh says. So God's talking now. In six days, Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, and he rested on the seventh day. Now, why does God need to say anything more? And we don't believe it. And somehow we come up with evolution or theistic evolution of that. No, God said that. He made the world in six days. That's what it says. We believe it. We welcome that. That's the truth. That's his word. We hear it. We understand it. We apply it. We obey it. We defend it. We advance it. We don't compromise on it. And it's not less important than some other doctrine. And there's just a string of doctrines like that. Because some of us might be sitting here thinking, well, I don't have that problem. I believe everything the Bible says. Really? How are you doing on creation? That is important. That's foundational. Or how are you doing on election, which is taught in Genesis to Revelation all throughout the Bible. And there are many verses on that. Romans 8, 29 and 30. That in the beginning, God foreknew you before the foundation of the world. And those whom he foreknew, he predestined before creation. He marked them out for salvation. And those whom he predestined, he called specifically by name. This is all before salvation. Ephesians chapter 1. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. I could go on with about 32 other verses. Don't have time. That's a hard doctrine, but it's in the Bible. It's clear. What's your attitude towards the Bible when you hear those truths? What about abortion? Do you believe there's life in the womb? Apparently there are Christians, quote, out there who think, Oh, no, life isn't in the womb. Abortion's okay. Really, calling themselves Christians. When the Bible says otherwise, all over the place. Psalm 139, God himself says, God himself says, when you were in the womb, I made you. I fashioned you. Life in the womb is sacred. Every living baby in the womb is made in the image of God and valuable and sacred and precious to God. And to snuff out that life is murder. How are we doing on that? Biblical truth. Um, some other common ones in our day and age that are hard to hear for some Christians. Oh, how about the fact that uh, the New Testament is very clear about who should be a pastor in a church or an elder or a shepherd or an overseer. And the scripture is very clear. Jesus trained 12 men to be the first pastors of his church. 12 men. you got to be a, not just a man, a qualified man. And recognized and raised up by God. And so Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, he lays it out. God created Adam and Eve, men and women. They have different roles. They have different functions. Assigned by God perpetually, to represent him. And in the church, God has assigned that pastors be men, not women. He literally says that in 1 Timothy 2. I do not permit a woman to exercise ruling, teaching authority over men in the church. Why? And he goes on to say, because God created Adam first, then he created Eve. He even gives more reasons to that. And then in 1 Corinthians 14, he just gets more specific. Women are to keep silent in the church. And I could go on and on. First Timothy 3, he gives qualifications of a pastor, elder in the local church. First qualification, he needs to be a man. That's what it says. 
a one-woman man. Well, in this day and age, you've got to compromise all over the place. Women pastors, people condoning it, watering it down. Oh, that was a historical thing. Oh, that's Paul's opinion. Oh, she's a nice lady. She's very gifted. And on and on it goes. Well, Pastor Cliff, that's controversial. No, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. It's not controversial. It's face value. Are we listening? Are we welcoming it? Are we embarrassed by it? Or are we welcoming it and obeying it? Because it's a blessing for obedience. I could go on and on with basic biblical truth that is being compromised all over the place, even in the church and conservative churches even, because of the pressure from the culture. God said, don't do that. There will be a blessing for you if you are obedient to his word. Just a couple others. Number three, there's disinterested listening. We already saw that. That's in uh, Luke 8, verse 12. That was real simple. Uh, that was just people who don't want anything to do with the Bible, the gospel, or the word of God. And the key phrase, I think, in there was the fact that uh, the word of God goes out and Satan comes along and whoosh, snatches up the seed. That would be a typical unbeliever when you go on an evangelism event and you, you knock on the door and they see you and they close the shades. Or they open the door and hear you want to give the gospel and they slam the door in your face. Or the relative you have at Thanksgiving that gets irate when you bring up Jesus or Bible things. That's category number one. And according to Ephesians 2, they are being controlled by Satan. Jesus said in John chapter 8, they are of their father, the devil. They wouldn't want to hear that, but Jesus told us where they're coming from. So that's disinterested listening. I don't want to hear any of it. Then there's emotional listening. That was the second soil. Chapter 8, verse 13, key phrase there. They get this, they hear the word of God and they receive the word with joy. They hear the gospel, biblical truth, Christianity, and there's an initial response of joy. It's emotional, it's enthusiastic. This is emotional listening because it doesn't last. They're looking for an experience. They're basing what is true on emotion and experience, but we don't do that. We base what's true on what we think not on what we feel. So that's emotional listening. Just a couple more. Um, then there's distracted listening, number five. Boy, this is a biggie for us. That was soil number three. They received the word or they were open to it. But in the end, there was no fruit in their life. But they're not opposed to Christianity. These are people probably who sit in church year after year after year after year. And they're, they're always the same. It's like they're always at the starting gate. And they don't seem to grow in their life. Jesus said, there is no fruit to maturity in their life. They're not opposing the word of God. They haven't fallen away. They haven't walked away from the faith. They just go to church forever. They're a churchgoer forever. Their life doesn't change. They're still embroiled in uh, problems they had 30 years ago. There's no progress. And you're looking like, where's the growth? There's no fruit. But they say they're a Christian. That's this category. And Jesus' diagnosis is they probably don't know Christ. That's for him to be the judge of, but that's what they look like. And well, what is the thing that we can look for? Well, what happens is they hear the gospel and is drowned out and smothered out by the worries of the world. They're concerned about the priorities in this life, the riches of this world, and the pleasures of this life. In other words, worldliness has snuffed out or is smothering out the gospel. They're a compromised so-called professing Christian. They got one foot in the church and one foot in the world. And God said, no, you can't serve money and God, and you can't love the world and love God at the same time. And then finally, there's obedient listening, and that was soil number four. And we'll close with this. And it comes down to this phrase that Jesus mentioned. I don't know if you caught it uh, two weeks ago when Austin was preaching, but this is obedient listening and 
the soil, it said that the person who is a true believer had an honest and good heart. Wow. We're not used to hearing that because we're always saying, oh, we're all evil. We got a wicked heart. We got a compromised heart. Nobody has a good heart. And Jesus said, if you're a Christian, there is a sense in which you have an honest and good heart. So if you're a Christian, do you have an honest and good heart? Yes, from God's point of view, in that the Spirit of God made you have an honest and good heart. We didn't do it on our own. Apart from Him, it's not an honest and good heart. But it's good in that it welcomes the Word. It takes root. It grows. You're born again. You are a Christian. As a matter of fact, if you're a Christian, God has given you a new heart. That's why it's good. Anything that's good is 100% from God in the Christian. Anything bad in a believer is 100% your fault and my fault. So it all comes down to being obedient is, is the right attitude, being a good listener. So if you want to evaluate yourself today in light of Jesus' three proverbs that were three challenges or exhortations to how we should rightly respond to the Bible whenever we hear it preached, it comes down to our attitude. And the attitude is I have a submissive attitude to the Word of God. I'm not afraid of the Word of God. I don't get mad and angry when I hear something from the Word of God that I don't agree with. I'm submissive to it. I am like the Bereans in Acts 17, 11. But when they heard the word of God, it says they welcomed it eagerly and examined it carefully to see if what Paul said was true. That's how we need to be with respect to God's truth. This is the food for our soul, people. This is our milk. This is our drink. This is our sustenance. This is our meat. This is how we grow. This is how God speaks. This is how we give him glory, is honoring his word. You want to be in the, under the umbrella of blessing and protection? Then hear God's word. And he needs to help us with his spirit. With that, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we do thank you for our time together in Scripture, we thank you most of all for the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke as we recount what he said. We thank you that you have preserved this truth without error for us for 2,000 years. And your Holy Spirit even today makes it come alive. And God, I pray that what we heard through your Holy Spirit, you would allow us to understand the truth from the Word of God. You would sensitize our hearts to the truth of the Word of God, remove any barriers that we have, whether it's a lack of faith, wrong motives, ignorance, fear, so many other ways that we can be compromised as a people. But your Spirit can override all that, Lord, and we pray, we know that you will. And thank you for the blessing that Jesus also imparted, saying that if we obey, there will be fruit, we will be in your family, and you will bless. We thank you for all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.